We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. Hi, I'm Nikhami, entrepreneur, founder, and CEO of my very own beauty brand, Carmela Cosmetics, and business consultant. This is We Are Women, Beauty Redefined, a podcast where women speak their truth and celebrate their victories. This podcast features different women whose names you probably recognize. You've seen them, been following them, and might even think that they've always had it together. Listen in to hear the women you know and love share their journeys with self-acceptance and self-love, discovering their unique beauty and confidence in a society that for so long has focused on exemplifying a specific beauty standard. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of red and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women, beauty redefined. This episode is a continuation of my conversation with therapist and speaker Rachel Horkman, where we were talking about the behind the scenes of Instagram life, and she was about to start sharing the story of how she discovered that she had a lung tumor. If you didn't listen to part one yet, go back and do that, and then join us back here to listen to the rest of Rachel's story, where she shares the health scare that she went through, and what you learned, the importance of listening to our own bodies, vulnerability on social media, why she took a post down that had a lot of engagement, Rachel's advice for other therapists, the hardest lessons she's learned both professionally and personally, and so much more. We covered so much during this episode and it was really a raw and real conversation with both of us being very open and transparent. Listen in and be inspired. From a a women's empowerment perspective. I I was pregnant with my fourth kid and my twins, um, I went to the hospital, didn't realize I was in labor. I just like my stomach was bothering me. I was, I was a little early, but I just assumed that the contractions would be as intense as they were when I was pregnant the first time with my son. Anyway, long story short, when I got to the hospital, when I was in labor with my twins, um, I found out there I was very dilated and I gave birth like, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours later. And I was very in my body. I was very present with my body. Like at one point they said, oh, your blood pressure is starting to, you know, it's starting to hike. Like, and, and there was a C-section tool set up like right next to me. And I was like, guys, give me a minute. I'll calm my body down. And I was able to calm my body down. And you know, thank God I, you know, was able to deliver them. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't deliver them myself, but you know, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. and so I have a certain awareness that I have certain tools that I can try to, you know, regulate my body. And when I got pregnant with my fourth, I was so much more present in my body, the, the whole pregnancy. And the last trimester I developed a bad cough and it just wouldn't go away. I couldn't swim a lap. I couldn't exercise. I couldn't talk without breaking into a cough. And I was saying to doctors, like, this doesn't feel like this feels different. Like I, I've been pregnant before. Like I didn't have this before, you know? Um, and I gave birth and it's interesting because I decided before the birth that I wanted to try childbirth without an epidural. And I just want to make clear, like, I'm not one of these people who's like, in any like extreme camp. Okay. Like this is not, 
I just like, it was like this bucket list thing for me where I was like, I want to try childbirth without an epidural. And my doctor was like, do you need suggestions for other things on your bucket list? Like, <laughs> I was like, you don't get it. Anyway, so I, I gave birth without an epidural. And it was for me a great experience because I saw that I can do pain, like extreme pain in a way that I'd never done before. I just want to make clear that, you know, giving birth without an epidural does not make me a rock star. Sometimes like, it's like, oh my God, this woman, she's a rock star. Right. And even with my twins, I remember I, I meet people for the first time. They see I have twins and they're like, oh, was it C-section? And I'm just like, do you wear tampons or pads? Oh yeah. That's a weird question for me to ask you when I meet you for the first time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> why are we asking about people's vaginas? Like you just met, like why? Right, right. So anyway, people are like, oh, they mean well. And I'm like, there's plenty of other things to talk about. Everyone means well. Oh my God. Enough with that thing. Like they mean so, well. Like it's not a get, get a shelf free card. Like, All right. Stuff. Totally. <laughs> so anyway, so I gave birth without an epidural, which for me in this case was, was important because I saw like, I can, I can sit with pain, like, like extreme pain, but also I felt very clear. Sometimes epidurals, like you could be a little foggy for a few hours after I felt so clear in my body. And it was so clear to me that there's something wrong, like this breathing thing. There's something very wrong. I went to a pulmonologist 10 days postpartum. I said, there's something not right here. She's like, I think you have late onset asthma, uh, adult onset asthma. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like that's no, I don't have adult onset asthma. I'm here. Can you do a scan? And I actually, I have a friend who works in the ER who told me that her policy in the ER is that if a postpartum woman comes into the hospital with any symptoms, she tells her staff, you take them seriously. It doesn't matter how minor you think it is. She's like, because if this woman's willing to leave her newborn at home, she senses that something isn't right. And you need to respect that. Anyway, they do uh, an x-ray. It's abnormal. I get a CT scan. They're like, oh, you have pneumonia and you've had it for three, four months, like a walking pneumonia. Start antibiotics. Something inside of me was like, I feel like there's something more here going on. I couldn't explain why. I just had this knowing sense that there was more to it. So I actually went to another doctor and he was, he's a world specialist and we're sitting for a while talking about it. And he said, Rachel, you know, I also see pneumonia in your scan. He's like, I'm meeting you where you're at with your body right now, but you've been with your body your whole life. What's your sense of this? And I said, something's not right here. And I think it's more than pneumonia. And he said, okay, I'm going to show your scans to the radiology team here at this institution and I'll get back to you. And two days later, this was four weeks postpartum. I got a call from him and he said, you know, I showed your scans and um, you have a, a very rare benign tumor in your lungs. He's like, it's probably benign, but we're going to have to do a bronchoscopy to, you know, biopsy it. But usually the treatment is, is just that we remove part of your lungs. <laughs> my god so here's on four weeks postpartum and it was a day after Purim my newborn is in the back seat while I'm on the phone having this conversation you know pulled over on the side of a road and I always say that I think that there's certain experiences we have in our lives that it's a real before and after for us where that was a certain line of before and after 
sometimes we only can understand the before and after way removed and after the fact, but there are certain times where there's something that's happening to you and you could sense the line being drawn right now, where five minutes ago is now part of a previous chapter of your life. And that phone call for me of getting that call of saying, I'm pretty sure you have a tumor. That was a line in the sand for me of a certain before and after in my life. And I think the before and after experiences that we have, those are the things that when we look at the list of things we've been through in our lives, those things are in bold and they have like a little asterisk next to them because that thing didn't just happen to me. That thing became me. I, I'm not in that place anymore, but when going through that thing, it's like this thing became me. Yeah. It changed. Yeah. Yeah. So long story shorter, (laughs) I had surgery when I was 10 weeks postpartum where they removed my right lower lobe and it was laparoscopic. So I was discharged two days later. Um, I actually jogged three miles the night before the surgery. I said to my pulmonologist, I said, what can I do to like go into surgery with best outcomes? He's like exercise. And for me, it was very cathartic. Those, those jogs, those runs before surgery were really important for me. They were very contemplative. You know, I didn't know what was going to be. I didn't know what it would be like to then start running again afterwards. If I'd regain my capacity to run in the same way, like that kind of thing. And I was discharged and my pulmonologist, my surgeon did not um, discharge people with opioids, which I'm very happy about because the pain that I was in, because lung pain and nerves, you can't take a break from breathing, right? So the pain was just like, it was worse than childbirth because childbirth, it was like, I know this is going to end with a baby soon. And I childbirth, there were some breaks between contractions, but childbirth, the pain is a pain where you feel like this is a pain that I'm supposed to be feeling right now. What was hard for me about the lung pain was it was something that I was still coming to terms with because one of the hardest parts for me about that time period was the sense of this isn't supposed to be happening to me. I should, I'm not supposed to have a lung tumor. I don't smoke. I am active. I'm healthy. All these things. And for me, a big part of my kind of grieving, if you will, but also growing was a sense of there's no supposed to's like the supposed to's are manufactured by me, by us, whatever it is. But that sense of like, this isn't supposed to happen to me. First of all, there's no good time for a tumor. And I'm very lucky and I feel very lucky that I had that experience that was very painful at the time, but I've since made a recovery and I I have jogged long distances since then. And I, on a day-to-day basis, do not live with any effects of that. Um, But I learned a lot from it about what it means to advocate for ourselves and to be attuned to our bodies because I had to do that. I had to, you know, and this is not at all a, you know, I'm not here to like bad mouth the medical profession. Like I, they saved me, right? I had this amazing doctor who sat with me and was like, 
trusted me and my intuition about my body, you know, but we also need to understand ourselves and also raise our kids, especially our daughters with a sense of awareness that it's, it's okay to challenge authority, meaning we, we, we need to find that nuance about it. You know what I'm saying? Obviously we don't want it to be this, you know, don't respect authority, don't listen, but at the same time, you know, we have to be our own advocates. Yeah. I have to trust our gut. We have, we have to trust our gut, especially for women, the stats on like women and symptoms being missed and dismissed. Um, unfortunately over the last few years, I've heard stories from people where they had certain things where they said something to the doctor and the doctor kind of brushed it off. And part of it is that doctors don't have a lot of time to spend with people. But I will say that when I, when I had this, and again, I, I recognize that there are people that have had experiences that are similar where they are living with more effects of it. And, you know, they have to undergo a lot of other treatments. For me, my doctor was like, listen, this is the cure. You're going to, we're going to snip out part of your lungs and then you're going to move on with your life. And I'm like, you're such a surgeon. And I love that because this is exactly what I need to hear right now. I'm just like, go. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so it actually didn't impact, like in regards to how you feel, do you feel different in regards to breathing and stuff like that? So do I feel different? No, I would say, I think I might be more sensitive to air quality. Oh, interesting. Okay. Maybe I just, but then the other question is, 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 you know, for a year, basically like for 10 months to a year, I couldn't breathe fully. And I was, I was coughing all the time. So it's horrible. I think I became more sensitive in general to air and breathing. So it's hard to know if, but there are times where I would, you know, feel a little tickle when I would drive on New Jersey turnpike where there's like, sometimes the air there is like, really like, just Interesting. like, no, there's like a lot of pollution around. Right, Sometimes right. I'll, I like, I'll be aware of it. But generally speaking, um, I, you know, I went once, um, I had a cough. What was it last two years ago or something? I had a cough that really wasn't just going away. And, you know, I was a little nervous because I was like, it's not, it's not the same thing, but like, should I go get it checked out? I definitely find that I might feel triggered by coughs more than the average person, you know might be triggered by a cough, but I went in just to get checked out. And I did like a breathing, um, one of the breathing machines that my pulmonologist said to me, he said, Rachel, if, if someone just looked at your paper, like your stats and didn't know your history, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have any way of guessing. Like they would have no reason to guess that like you had a lobectomy or you had part of, you know, the lungs removed. So in terms of like my day-to-day in terms of like after effects, I don't physically feel that, but it changed me as a person. It changed me emotionally. There's no question about it. Um, you know, do you think it's made you even more compassionate towards your clients? A hundred percent. I mean, to sit with people in pain or to feel like the rug is being pulled out from your whole life or just to be in a place where there's a supposed to that there's an assumption about a supposed to that is now being shattered. Yeah. And being able to adapt and being able to make space for all the feelings that it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. And it's also okay 
to see, you know, for me, I, I think it softened me in certain ways. You know, I think it, I find I'm much more easily moved by things. I cry much more easily. Like I cry at funerals, like no matter who the funeral is, you know, like these are things that didn't happen to me before. So I find that I definitely, in terms of sitting with people on their pain, but also my somatic, my appreciation for somatic awareness has also changed tremendously because for me, it was life-saving. Right. Sure. You know, I think that we, we go through these experiences and other people might want to label it for us to try to interpret it or try to like tie it neatly with a bow. And I think part of life is accepting that like not everything can be tied neatly with a bow. If ever, or not now, or it's not for other people to do that. If that makes sense. It's true. It's true. Also, like we, we do have these ideas of how life is supposed to be. And it, it's really difficult when things either just come up, like, you know, like traumas, kind of like, like what you went through, or even just like when things just don't happen the way that you thought they would happen. And it really takes a lot of reframing and figuring right. out and realizing, because that's the first step, right? Awareness that, like, well, clearly it wasn't supposed to happen, or clearly this was supposed to happen, you know? So it's interesting. There's that. And I think also there's, I mean, a lot of it is, are you going through this by yourself? Like, who are the people that you're, who's there with you? And are they giving you what's helpful and what you need? I think for me, where I come from are my support systems. And I recognize, you know, I, I call it emotional privilege. People talk about racial privilege and financial privilege. Privilege, I talk about emotional privilege of having spaces and people where you could share emotionally about where you're at and what's going on for you. And I had that and have that. And I think that that played a tremendous role in being able to go through this. I find some people come to therapy to find a place where they could feel emotional privilege. I would be more than happy if I no longer had a business of being a therapist, if it meant that everyone was finding places and people in their lives where they could just have that and be able to process and heal. We're not there yet, <laughs> but for me, I think I had those messages. And I think my previous experiences of seeing that I can, I can set intentions, right? I always say like they're setting expectations and they're setting intentions. Setting expectations is relying on an outside outcome, but setting intentions is that's something I can work on. And I could decide, I could put my mind to something and say, I want to do this. You know, I want to get through this or even for me to decide at times, like, I'm not, I don't want to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. It's okay. I'm afraid, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to marinate in it, you know, and also being open to the fact that there's different times where we might be reminded of things. So people say, you know, you should talk from your scars, not your wounds, you know, but I think that many scars that we have, there are times where it still feels like a wound. So let's yeah. say on, on the day, you know, that I, I always find I mark the, my discharge date from the hospital, not my surgery date. And that day for me, I don't feel like I'm sitting with a scar. I feel like I'm sitting with a wound. 
because there's something about it that just feels a lot more raw, but that's not how I feel the rest of the year. And that's okay. And that doesn't mean I haven't healed or done really good processing, or I'm in a place where I really don't think about it much, but it's part of me. You know, one of the things that was interesting for me about having a lung tumor is I asked my doctor, I said, if you're removing part of my lungs, like this lobe, is it going to grow back? And he said, well, it doesn't work that way. He said, we're going to remove it. And then there's going to be this space there. He's like, and then the rest of the lobes are going to figure out that that lobe is missing and they're going to pick up the slack and that space will be filled, but it's not going to regrow that lobe, but the rest of your lungs are going to be like, okay, guys, we're going to do this and we're going to work together and make it work with four lobes. And I feel like that's how loss can work, where in this case, I lost a part of myself, not just emotionally, but literally, right? And we go through something and we lose a part of ourselves. And then there's like this open space that might get filled, but it's always going to be a space where there used to be something else, right? And what ends up happening when we go through these difficult things sometimes is that when we lose a part of ourselves, the rest of us and our other parts step up and we become more aware of them and more access to them and just a new kind of configuration happening within ourselves that we would not have been thrust into had we not gone through that loss. And let me be clear, this is not me trying to tie it with a bow. If I could have it my way, I still would rather that I didn't go through this experience. This is not me sitting here being like, so happy I suffered. No, that's not what this is. But I can now, and this is something only I can make meaning of. I can look back and, and feel that sense of meaning about my experience and what it was like for me. I still remember when I was diagnosed, I actually, it was very serendipitous, but I was connected to two different women it was very weird. They also were in their third pregnancy when they were diagnosed with this very rare lung tumor. And also it was just like a very weird situation. And I was connected to both of them and spoke to both of them. And one of them said to me, and again, this is what was helpful at the time. I remember sitting at my dining room table, hysterically crying at 1am talking to this woman who I had never met in person or never met before, but she knew me better in that moment that than anyone else did. And she said to me, Rachel, it's going to be really hard, but you're going to be okay. And that's what I needed to hear right then. I think, and could she make that a hundred percent promise I was going to be okay? I don't know, but I think I needed that to hear that sense of like, it's going to be really hard and, and you're going to be okay. And it was, it was really, really hard and I was okay. And I am okay. And that to me, so such a big part of this is do we have those people and those places where we can get the support that we need, I think makes such a big difference. Yeah. And also I love that she was so real with you and, and just sat there with you, held space for your pain and wasn't like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. It's going to like, no, it's going to be hard. And you'll be okay. And that's such a great lesson for life, you know, because yeah. I, I think that we live like a lot of Americans, an American thing, I think we're just like, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But 
it's I mean sorry not that it's gonna be like you'll yeah like just saying that and like you'll be fine like without the first part of like listen it's it's gonna be hard it's gonna be difficult I'm sorry for what you're going through I I I, I you know I, I can only imagine like what this is right and then, and then the second part because a lot of people don't do that you know what I mean right and she was making space she was making space for the variety the emotional variety and and she was also very clear that like her experience was hers and mine was mine and you know she had actually her surgery was open chest it was not laparoscopic so I felt very fortunate that mine was laparoscopic it wasn't a whole open chest surgery you know I have a like a three inch scar on my side for that it's fine. It's not like I was a bikini model before and now I lost my job. Like it's fine. Right. <laughs> um, but so I, I did feel lucky just in terms of I had access to medical care that helped me and I had support. I had so, there were so many things in place that enabled me to get through this and to, you know, get my lung capacity back and, you know, show up for my family and, you know, and, and all that stuff. But I think that our sense of attunement to ourselves and not just our external, but our internal, right? Meaning people get so like, you're talking about the pimple, right? Like we, the, we get very focused on like the outside checking, but do we have that same awareness and appreciation and encouragement about the internal awareness and attunement? Right. I think that's why therapy is becoming so popular now because mm -hmm. people are starting to notice the world is right. shifting and it's like, oh, let's work on ourselves from the inside out, you know? Yeah, there's that. And I also think that we, we're at a place now where I think we have more understanding for the effect of stress on our bodies and the way we react to things. We, we carry it, right? We, we carry our stuff. It's not just like this thought thing we're dealing with, but we, we carry our stuff. And I think that increase in appreciation for that, or just this idea, even that time doesn't heal wounds, like healing heals wounds, but like time itself doesn't heal wounds. Right. It might, but I don't think we can rely on it as the sole vehicle for healing. For sure. Yeah. So one thing I'll say, what I just realized in this conversation is that we started out talking about these more like certain, not surface things in a shallow way, but just more surface things. And I find that if you talk to anyone long enough, you will hear about a mountain they had to climb. Yeah. You will, you will hear about the supposed dues that they had to grieve and had to figure out a way to adapt to. And that's something that I think social media is not able to capture about people. And word counts make things very short, which means then that we're either like totally just in the like, this is my latte and this is what's in it. Or it's like, trigger warning i'm getting vulnerable i don't know why i just I don't, I don't know why i just did a deep voice honestly i don't know why i did a deep voice like instagram doesn't talk that way and the post didn't necessarily say that but like this Sorry. this thing that we have to like 
warn people that we're going to get vulnerable. Isn't that interesting that that's something that, you know, I understand that people want to give people like a heads up, like this is the topic I might tap into, but the fact that we like, what is it? What's behind that, that need to warn people like, like, I think it's, yeah. I I think think that it's an insecurity. I think it's like, I like, it's almost like they're giving a, a part of themselves. They're putting a piece of themselves out there and they just want to kind of get that approval almost. You know what I mean? Like, here's what's about to happen. Just right. Or another end of the spectrum. I think that it's just for marketing purposes because it's well, a catchy thing. Like that's right. Which, yeah. which is what I wonder about because then we're, we're using vulnerability in like a salesy way. Oh, to- oh my gosh, Rachel. That's what Instagram has half of Instagram. <laughs> Literally right. like, so, I mean, let's, I, 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 this is, this is, if we're going to get into Instagram for a minute, just, this is a huge, a huge issue because people are using vulnerability and using personal stuff, using things that they shouldn't be sharing just for the numbers. I mean, think about it. Even Rachel Talkman. Okay. We're going to hear a shout out on the podcast, but like she'll talk about like showing kids faces or, you know, for showing kids crying on Instagram. I mean, that is to me just, you know, I wouldn't want it to be posted like a video of me crying without right. consent, like what, you know, for numbers, right? So I think it's a similar yeah. idea. Right. And so then the question is, is does that cheapen vulnerability? Meaning we want people to respect vulnerability, right? We're trying to educate older generations about are there benefits to being vulnerable? Because not everyone buys into that. There's still plenty of people who are like, what is the point of talking about feelings? You know? And they might be emotionally constipated and that might be the way they live. They have lived their lives. You know, they would, they lived up until this point. And we're trying to explain that there's benefits to being vulnerable in the right times. When we see vulnerability used as a sales tactic and that the call to action is, you know, DM me for your discovery call, I think that it cheapens, it can cheapen vulnerability. I'm not thinking, by the way, about any one specific person. So like, this is not me calling someone out or whatever. It's just, I think this thing of like, if I wouldn't announce this to the whole world, to a whole coliseum of people, am I okay? posting it on social, you know, I also think it's okay to take something down. You know, I remember two years ago, I, I had a whole series on breakups that, you know, I, I collected like thinking over the years, like what were the themes and particularly grieving a manipulative partner. And I posted something and it was like two, it was, you know, you had to swipe and I got a few messages from people saying that it was like a little too much. It was, it was, it hit home very intensely for them. And I thought afterwards about it, that, you know, one of the issues with social media is that we might be posting something that speaks to people, but when are they reading this? They might be laying in their bed, 1am, they're by themselves. And we just wrote a post about a manipulative partner and they now just put a few things together or it's bringing up memories for them of someone who like really hurt them. What is that experience going to be like for them? 
who's going to hold, who's going to hold them through that? Do they have someone who can hold them through that? And that's where the isolation, isolation of social media is. That's not the same as when we sat on our beds reading women's magazines. We were sitting together, you know, when we did the quiz, does your crush like you? Does your crush like you back? And it always said your crush liked you. He did. He probably didn't like you, but you were more likely to keep reading the magazine and keep buying the magazine if the quiz tells you that your crush likes you back. But anyway, (laughs) your crush probably doesn't like you back, but anyway, but I, I got a few messages that basically were telling me that it wasn't like, I wasn't called out. I wasn't, and I just yeah, meditated on it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take these down. Really? Yeah. I took them down and I, and I, I then wrote a post saying it's okay to delete a post. And I explained my reasoning. And would I do that now? Maybe, maybe not. But I think that there's always this balance between you know, people need to be responsible for their emotional functioning when they're reading. But I also think as creators, there's a certain responsibility of saying, how's this going to land on people? I'm very selective about what I post. I don't post about my clients. That to me is like such a red line. It really bothers me that there are therapists who will write about cases. I just think that it's really disrespectful to clients or it can be. I know I feel like I'm I'm not implicating anyone in particular. I just, I find that like there are therapists who write books about their clients and they say it's a composite and hopefully it is, but I just, I don't know. I don't want someone to ever see me and feel like they're going to end up in an article or a book. So anything I write about, I write about patterns, not people. So anything I write about is something that I've seen consistently that, and I tell people that if I'm writing about it, it's because I've seen it. I've seen it a lot. It's definitely a more conservative way of viewing things for sure. And there are those that will say, no, privacy laws is just that you don't, you know, just don't say the name of the client. I just feel that emotional safety for a client. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, if I saw a therapist writing about me, I would feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. Like you feel like everybody knows, even though no one knows. You know what I mean? You feel exposed. You don't feel seen, you feel exposed. There's a very fine line between feeling seen and feeling exposed. And it bothers me. I tell rabbis this also. I said, you need to stop sharing stories in your speeches. Even you think you leave out the name. First of all, people can figure it out, but also it's, it feels very exposing to people that they're coming to you to share something painful that they're going through. And then you're like, Oh, this would make a great story for my sermon. And you mean, well, but would you tell that story if you knew that they were sitting in the audience? Because even if they're not sitting in the audience, they can end up at a Shabbos meal with someone who was in your audience, who's telling over the story. And they're thinking like, oh my God, that's me. <laughs> so, you know, I think safety wise, it's social media is definitely something that people are continuing to evolve with. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with you. What are the hardest lessons that you learned both professionally and personally? Whoa. So lessons. Okay. I think, I think a few things, first of all, professionally, I think I've learned that to be a competent therapist is really so much more than getting the right training and going to this school or that school or doing this extra certification 
I think that one of the most important things for a therapist is that they've invested in dealing with their own pain and trauma. And I think that you can speak to people sometimes and get a sense if they've done their work or do their work or have that humility and awareness to do their work. Because I think that we can only go as far with our clients as we've gone ourselves. I think that therapy is like going to the land of vulnerability and you can't be a tour guide there if you're a tourist there. And I think this goes for ourselves even of like what I think getting to know ourselves is so important because then we're, I'm not just talking about therapy wise, I think just in any relationship context, I think if we are a tourist within ourselves and don't really kind of know our way around who we are, then it's hard to be a tour guide to try to explain to someone like, and this is this part of me and this is that part of me. And we continue to learn more, obviously. But I think in the therapy realm, I think for a therapist, if a therapist is very much a tourist for rawness and space for big feelings and pain and things like that, they're a tourist for that. It's many people can sense that energetically or not sense it. And it can, I think, create certain risks or blocks. Another lesson I think I've learned is that this one was tough. It's okay to not be a yes person. And if anything, I think it's important to not be a yes person because not everyone is someone that we should say yes to, you know, colleagues, this and that, like we, we have to be able to draw lines and, and educate others, like how to relate to you as a colleague, you know? Um, and that's something that I've had to learn. You know, I've, I've told colleagues, like, you know, even if they're friends, like if you send me a voice note, I need you to put a subject before the voice note. Cause I, I have no idea. Is it urgent? Is it that like, I, I need time and space. Like for example, if it's Sunday and I get a text message from a colleague or a bridal teacher that says, okay, what do you think I should do? I have a student. She just got married, unconsummated marriage, like a whole case. And I used to respond to those things and then be like, okay, call me later. And now I, I'll say to people, you know, next time, please ask before you ask, meaning you're asking me a question, please ask before you ask, because I'm actually like with my kids right now and it's Sunday and this is actually complicated and it's not just something I could send. You know, when people say also, what would I find? Another lesson I've learned when people say I have a quick question, a quick question doesn't mean it has a quick answer. And if anything, if they're asking the question, they actually may not know or realize the extent of what it taps into. Yeah. So being able to learn and to feel confident, which is also something that took me time to like gain the confidence to say, Hey, you know, quick questions don't have a quick answer. And I just, now's not a good time to have this conversation. Other lessons I've learned is that, you know, people talk about this thing of like how much, how much, you know, caring about what people think you know, what people think is none of my business. And, and I know that that works for people. I look at it like caring what people think is healthy, fearing what people think is heavy. I think caring what people think is enables us to have relationships with others, right? This idea of 
well, I'm just shutting myself off to not having any concern or consideration for what people might be thinking about me. Well, that's also operating on a certain premise that I'm objective about myself, which I can't be objective about myself, right? You know, it's like when you go into a dressing room, even if there's like mirrors there, it's still helpful when there's someone else trying stuff on who could tell you how something looks in the back. And those are like the best friends. Like those friendships are so easy to make because you're yeah. just like, oh, hey, you know. And it's helpful when you have that perspective of someone who could see an angle that you can't see. So I think we need more nuance to this idea of like, what does it mean to care what people think? What does it mean to fear what people think? In what ways does it keep us in check? In what ways does it keep us totally blocked? And that's something I think I've learned over the years too. Something else I've learned is that on the one hand, we are all so unique. On the other hand, we have things that really connect us. And I really believe that we can connect with other people when we put aside a lot of our kind of surface stuff and that there's something really enriching about it. There's something really enriching about being able to, to let people in and hear people's experiences. Another lesson for me that I think I've learned is that we change as people. That's life. We, we change. And if our goal is to get back to who we were before, then we're swimming against the current and we're probably, we can't swim back. Like life keeps moving. So I feel like the goal isn't necessarily like, I want to get back to that person I used to be, but more like accessing parts of ourselves that we feel like might be far away from us or missing, but also understanding that like, you know, this idea, it's never too late. Like sometimes things are too late. You know what I mean? Like if you missed a plane, like <laughs> I will never be a child violinist. That's just a reality. <laughs> it's too late for me. It's not too late right. for me to say, I want to try the violin, but it's too late for me to be a child violinist. So this idea of like life moving forward and that we, what are our expectations? What are our intentions about how we get through things and how we how we move through? Once something else that I think I learned is that you know the Hebrew word for you know test or challenge or struggle, people will use the word nisayon, and the root word of that is the word nes, which one of the definitions of nes is miracle, but nes also means like banner or flag. And I think when we go through struggles, we may not see it as miraculous. And I don't think that that's necessarily everyone's experience. But when we look back on our past experiences, they can represent a certain banner or flag for us of certain qualities within ourselves that we were able to access that we hadn't accessed before, or we didn't think we'd be able to get through. And People love to be inspired by other people's experiences, but I also like to challenge people and say, what about your own experiences that you've been through that you didn't know if you'd be able to get through, or you were surprised about what you were able to, you know, tap into for yourself. And it's, we can, we can derive strength from our own experiences and have those reminders of, I did that. And that was really hard. And maybe this situation in front of me is not 
not the same. Maybe the situation in front of me is harder, but I was able to show up for something that was terrifying and I was able to go through it. And there's, there could be potential for us to derive hope or not, or it could be positive, but even just a reminder of that banner of, I went through that. And, you know, it's interesting for me as therapist, I, I try to be private somewhat about what, what's going on in my life because I just also the whole social media thing and just I'm private about my family. I don't post my family. And this lung tumor thing was something that I've had, you know, I've thought about like, do I talk about it? Do I, I wrote an article about it to, you know, last year, two years ago, but I, I do find though, that there is a service aspect to it for me in sharing about it because it's not, Oh, now people can see this whole other side of me. It's, it's more just that even if one person hears it and says, you know what? I went to a doctor about something. The doctor said it was fine, but it turns out, you know what? Like maybe I'm going to go get another opinion, you know, a second opinion, or even just on a smaller level, our permission to advocate for ourselves and say, something doesn't feel right. Can we, we give this more thought. And even just a sense of validation that we have internal wisdom inside of ourselves. And if we slow down and make space for that awareness, we, we can derive a lot from it. And that's one of the reasons why I share about it is that I think as women, we really can encourage each other to listen to ourselves. We can learn from other people, but also to listen to ourselves. For sure. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Really. I also love how intentional you are with, with what you share and what you post that you really are so service-based. I mean, I definitely appreciate it and I'm sure your followers appreciate it as well. Thank you. Um, Even the word follower, by the way, when you say follower, part of me is like, uh, like when we were kids, like you didn't want to be called a follower. Right. He was like, that was this. Like, oh, you're such a follower. It's funny because I'll never say, oh, well, I should say never, but I'll rarely say followers. I'll, I'll usually say community. Right. But if I'm talking about other people's, <laughs> then I end up saying, I don't know why, just the way. Why? You don't say like, hey, Carmela fam. Oh my God. No. I do say, <laughs> we, we say, we have a, we have like a hashtag. It's Carmela crew. With okay, like KK, crew. with like crew with K. But um, besides for that, like I would never be like, oh my gosh, I was talking about it with someone else. Actually, we were discussing how it's so, it, it sounds very, I mean, I guess I shouldn't use the clinical term, but like it feels very, it sounds very narcissistic when people say those types of things, no? So like, narcissistic is like a whole other discussion. Oh yeah, okay, fine. So that's the wrong word. Let, no, no, no. no, 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 I don't want to, it's not, it's not that it's not narcissistic. I just actually, I'm not a fan of like calling things family that aren't family. I'm not oh, I was talking about the followers thing. Oh, you're talking about the followers yeah, thing. Yeah. I was talking about the fam thing. Okay. That's also weird because it's like, no, we're not a family. You know, it's like all of a sudden every business thinks that their community is family. Like, sorry, it's a business. It's not an unconditional relationship, right? right? It's not, oh, like you're still, we'll still give you everything even if you stop paying the bill. But I find it actually risky because like, I don't think businesses or workplaces or schools should say we're family because you could get fired and people should know that that's a possibility that they can get fired. I find that when there's cultures of we're family and blah, 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 blah. It's like, instead of, you know, it's like, you know, the, I'm trying to like, keep it very vague, but it's kind of like, instead of saying like, 
oh, there's a senior VP who is actually like super handsy and like wrote people's butts at the holiday party. It's like, oh, classic Phil, you know, doing his thing, grabbing butts. And it's like classic, <laughs> like, right. no, like, and I would say like the word classic basically often, often means not all the time, but it can mean in this context, like this is actually a behavior that's objectively problematic, but we've habituated to this person doing that. So classic Phil, you know, grabbing butts, even though like that is objectively not okay for anyone at the holiday party or generally speaking. So this whole thing of like, we're a family thing. I think it's meant to make people feel like they're close and connected and but it's, but there needs to be a sense of boundaries and that certain things are conditional. Certain things are conditional. Yeah. This isn't any less beautiful or loving or connected by having those parameters that are already there. Those are the parameters. We're just calling them something. We're we're, we're not being like accurate. A hundred (laughs) percent. I feel like we live in this generation where everything has to sound so amazing and so perfect and we're all like everyone loves each other and it's you know right and 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 it's it's actually in a way it's I feel like it's taken away from not not like the family structure because it hasn't but it's taken away from other things that are like legitimately authentic you know what I mean because you're saying that if you're saying that the business is a family and then you fire your employee the next day then like as you said you know how you compare that to someone who actually is kind of like family to someone else you know right Right. It just, it blurs things. And again, I think, I think it's, it's an attempt or a a hope to create closeness and to, you know, make people feel like they belong. I think ultimately, like we want to feel like we belong. And it's interesting because on the one hand, we want to be in our individuality and and all that, but we also, I find most of us want to feel like we belong and that, and that we make sense right? That I make sense as a person that I, right. That, that other people understand. And I think that's why social media does have that benefit. I think that there are many people who have gone through experiences that they didn't have words for, or they certainly didn't know many other people who, you know, went through that. And then you go online and you can find your people, right? The question is, is in terms of our satisfying the need to belong and the need to have resonance and support, you know, in what ways does it fall short? In what ways is it, is it adequate? Yeah, totally. All right. If you had one message to give over to the next generation of women, what would that message be? One message. I feel like I have like a lot of, a lot of messages popping into my head. I think that if I had to give one message, it would be that we evolve as people And this pressure to define ourselves in this very absolute way is something that is, it it totally makes sense why we, or why I want to do that. At the same time, we are constantly evolving and making space for that and permission for that and nuance I think is so big. I will say that something else. Oh, but you asked for one lesson. It's fine. You could add another one. (laughs) I could add another one. I think something else is that we can support each other and and there's enough to go around. You know, I think girls are 
like notorious for being kind of catty and, and stuff like that. And, um, I find that, and I feel really grateful for this. Like, I don't, I don't feel like threatened by my colleagues success. Like I'm so happy for them. I'm so happy to send them referrals. I'm so happy to see them advance. And there's, you know, it's interesting. I was just in Disney and at night they have this like the fireworks thing have you been to disney recently no at like 8 15 they do these fireworks over the castle and it's like a whole thing like people are camping out like an hour before it's like you know serious stuff and it's it was called enchanted you know it was like an enchanted evening or something enchanted whatever and i know there's a movie enchanted but i was thinking about the word because disney is so like what is the draw of Disney? Like, what is it that people love about it so much? And I think there's different reasons, but something that I sensed there when I was there is that it's a place where you are encouraging dreaming and kind of going beyond the finite of what's in front of you and transcending that. And I think as kids, we dream and we have excitement about dreams. And then what happens to them, right? What happens to our dreams over time? I mean, disenchantment is kind of, we stop believing in something or stop seeing the value in something. And I find we often ask other people about their plans and what they're hoping to do, or, you know, sometimes those questions are even inappropriate. It's like, oh, are you planning to have another baby? Which is like, that's none of your business. But we're like quick to ask other people about their dreams and plans. What about like our own? Do we have them? Do we cultivate them? What is inspiring those dreams? What is influencing those dreams? And how do we integrate those ideas, thoughts, hopes, beliefs, dreams into our day-to-day life? And there's a difference between creating a life and curating a life. And we are living in a world now where there's a lot of focus on curating a life and how it might look and how if it looks a certain way, then it's supposed to feel a certain way. And creating a life is not the same as curating life. And I think asking ourselves that question is not just what kind of life am I curating if I'm on social media, but what kind of life am I creating and what does it make space for and who does it make space for? And am I still me, but also continuing to change? Cause that's also a piece. Like we, we do grow, we do change hopefully, but we still want to make space for like who we are and what makes sense for us. And that's something that with time, takes time it's this idea that's going to happen right away or easily or when we're young like it takes time to kind of learn to figure out who we are and what works for us and what feels right yeah so that was great that was really great um okay where can people find you Rachel if they want to learn more about you see your posts and just follow along your journey so it's funny I just said yeah I was was gonna be like my journey (laughs) meaning because it's such a common like term and I'm like Am I posting my journey? It's interesting. Like, I guess so. I'm posting guess like the way, these, right? these insights or thoughts that I have, you know, with time and, or my jogging thoughts, or, you know, I'll post something from the Bible. Um, they can find me on Instagram at Rachel Herkman, uh, R-A-C-H-E-L-H-E-R-C-M-A-N. And uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining me today. This was so wonderful having you. Thanks for sharing everything. It was it was really, really great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel like this was, it was cool because it was just like 
where is this going to go? And it kind of was like, oh my gosh, this accidentally became two episodes. That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Carmela Cosmetics. That's Carmela with a K. And on our website, CarmelaCosmetics.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard. 